Now, last week we went over a basic outline of the timeline of the prophets. And if you weren't here last week, can you raise a hand? I'll walk you uh, the two sheets from last week. So these uh, sheets, one of them is from a former uh, study we went through. Adam, you need more than And then one of them was just a timeline of Old Testament prophets, both the writing and non-writing. And as we learned uh, last week, we talked about prophetic and um, prophetic and apocalyptic literature. We talked about how the prophet acted as almost a lawyer or a covenant mediator, um, standing between God and his claims for his people. And on that sheet that has all of the uh, kind of a timeline mm-hmm. of the prophets, we said the way we were going to do this class is spend about two, three lessons on the first clump of names between Moses and Micaiah. And then we were going to spend the rest of the class on the writing prophets because we do have um, more information on them because, first off, they left whole books behind, but we also have some historical information that corroborates some of their ministries. So there's more to say about them. There's more content. There's more... uh, we say almost verification, not just of what they said, but the conditions they were speaking about uh, from the historical register and archaeological information. And so the first section of this class moves a lot more quickly just because we're dealing with verses and snippets of prophets and, uh, and anecdotes and stories that are collected about them rather than uh, large, you know, bodies of writing. So the first prophet we're going to start about, and he kind of breaks the mold a little bit, but he should because he's also the benchmark is Moses. And in your timeline, um, just to give a good rounded figure of when Moses was operational, I have there 1400 BC, and there are late and early date hypotheses as to when uh, Moses liberated um, the people of Israel from Egypt. We know that there was a meltdown, per se, of Egyptian power in the ancient Near East around this time. The pharaohs lost. Um, there are actually several uh, declines that happened in this time. One, um, we have spoken of in the book of Genesis, if you remember, there comes a king who does not remember Joseph or what he did, and so the people of Israel fall out of favor. Um, that time period is one of the declines, and then there is a decline after Moses leaves with the people of Israel, which should be expected if you just lost a lot of your industrial capacity because some of your factory workers uh, were liberated, your output would suffer. And if you just lost a good chunk of your army in the Red Sea, 
your ability to project, to project would suffer. And so we do know that there is a lull in time at which Egypt does not have the power to project into uh, where Israel moves. And if you line those dates up, it kind of gives you a 1400 B.C. type time frame. I believe one of the actual ones is 1446 for when Moses was operational. The reason why this is important is because we do know with more certainty when Samuel and David and others operated, and we have that big chunk of time in the book of Judges that we'll be dealing with today where it's really just you know one story after another, and you don't know if some of them overlap because they're in different regions, or if they're all happening kind of within close proximity to each other, or if it's you know hundreds of years. You 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 have uh, in the book of Judges um, just a wild west feel about the people of God in Israel at that time, and so we we do have you know like I said from fourteen hundred to about ten fifty just a general idea of what's going on. I will give you, because I always love to give archaeological and historical evidence to support the Bible, we do have during this time period some writings preserved because that area um, where the Canaanites lived, they were vassal states under the protection of the Pharaoh of Egypt, part of his empire, And like most vassal states, they depended upon their overking to guarantee their independence. And if he did that, they would guarantee a certain amount of industrial output given back to him, usually raw materials like iron or bronze or something to that effect. We have uh, writings in the historical register that have been found from different kings of city-states like Ai, Jericho, um, all of these Canaanite cities asking the Pharaoh to send help because they're being attacked by somebody. And so there's a good indication that if you're being attacked by somebody around the same time that the Bible says Joshua is attacking you, that there is a cross-reference there of, hey, here's the Bible and here's the historical record Um, What's even more interesting is when they talk about who's attacking them, it's spoken of as these people who just live out there somewhere and they're just there. It's not that there's an inter-kingdom war going on with other cities. It's just massive migrations of people who are attacking these cities and overrunning them. And I believe it's the city of Lachish. Uh, It's a city-state in Israel, and it sends one off. And it's the same people who just took out this city and this city. And if you look at the book of Judges, it's in order of what Joshua conquered. So we've got a lot of cool historical uh, evidence that does show what was going on between the time of Moses and the Judges. But we also have, because of the decline of Egypt and other kingdoms, kind of, it's, it's a gray area. And so the biblical, uh, the biblical um, record um, is going to give us some information on what was happening then where we don't have a lot of corroboration from other historical sources. And uh, 
but it's going to give it from a spiritual perspective. The book of Judges is not just a history of, in this year I did this, and this year I did this, like ancient writings often are. The book of Judges is written with a prophetic perspective. And so I, I do want to bring up this, this phrase here, and it's the prophetic perspective. <clears throat> Not on your notes. This is all free, okay? The prophetic perspective means when this information is saved or written down or portrayed, it's not there just to give you history, but it's there to give you a moral framework behind it. We went over this in my class when I told you that the biblical historical narratives are not written just so you can know what was happening in 1446 B.C. They're written as a record to God's people of what God was doing to redeem His people in their life at that point. And so we use the word bias a lot, and bias is not a bad word. We talk about media bias. We talk about you know, scientific bias. Bias is, when you hear it, you think it's negative. It's not always negative. If I tell you that my son is, is the best, I'm biased, but I'm a father, you know? So when you have the Bible written this way about God's people, it is biased, but it's biased because God is talking through the prophets or through the writers uh, with a perspective he wants preserved. And that is often the prophetic perspective. And so um, you get that a lot in, the, in all of the historical books of the Bible. These are not just flat records of history. They are the records of God's people and the preservation of God's people. So let's talk about Moses and the judges era and let's talk about the prophets here and so we're going to start i've got a lot of verses on your handout and i may ask you to read some of them i may read let's all talk together let's let's all turn together to these so we can kind of talk about it but the first one's genesis 20 chapter uh chapter 20 verse 7 Genesis 20, verse 7. Now, if you remember, um, Abraham twice tried to hide Sarah from a king. First was Pharaoh in Egypt, and the second was Abimelech. And when he does that this time, Abimelech um, th gets threatened by God. And in verse 7... God tells him, now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. And so Abimelech gives Sarah back to Abraham. This is the first occurrence in the Bible of the word Navi or prophet. Remember we talked about Navi last week. Um, 
And it's interesting because it's used about Abraham, a man that we don't necessarily usually think uh, fulfills the role of a prophet. But in, in this occurrence, if you look at it, it does make sense because God has been using Abraham for several years now at this point in his life as kind of an objective um, an objective invasion of this area of the world by his plan. Like he, remember, he takes Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans and from his own family. He moves him over there and he just starts working through him, preserving his life, making him super rich, making him powerful. And it's like, despite Abraham's best designs, because remember, he tries to fix it himself and it doesn't work. But despite his best designs, God keeps blessing him and people begin to realize that, that God is with him. And so it, it no longer even matters what Abraham is doing. God is just, it's like God is invading the Middle East through this man and through his family. And so in this part, God calls him a prophet. Now remember, Abraham does not fulfill typically the usual prophetic role. But he is the voice of God for these people around him. Remember, there's even one place where the guy says, hey, you did a, you did a great job fighting, and you keep all the spoil. Just give me the people back you recapture. And he says, no, I've lifted my hand to God in heaven. I will not take any money from you because you can't say you made me rich. That, that, that glory all belongs to God. So Abraham has been speaking kind of as God's representative in the area. He's been building altars to the Lord in this area where other gods are worshipped. And so he does kind of fulfill the role of prophet, but it's a little different. But you can still see that, that Abraham is acting as the point at which heaven and earth meet. They meet right now in Abraham's family and in his life. That is where God is active to redeem the human race through this one old man. And so he is called a prophet here. And you'll see this theme developed. Now let's uh, turn over one book to Exodus chapter 7. Y'all might remember it was the semester that COVID started. We were actually going through the book of Genesis, the life of Abraham and the patriarchs. Was anybody in here in that class? I know Charles was. Um, maybe a few others had seen some of them online. I posted them during the shutdown. But we went through the life of Abraham and talked about how, you know, Abraham, um, he's called Father Abraham for a reason. He, he is the spiritual father, as Paul says, of all who believe. Because in Genesis 15, 6, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. He is the first person we have a record of in Scripture who's justified by faith. And, and God sets him kind of as a mold of this is how I'm going to redeem humanity. I'm going to call them out. I'm going to become, you know, their savior, their father, their God, their protector, and they will believe in me, and I won't count their sins against them. And so Abraham here is kind of a benchmark also for the idea of the prophet being, being uh, the part where the power of heaven meets earth and the rules get changed because he was an old man, his wife was an old woman. 
and the rules got changed, you know. So we kind of see the beginning of this. Now in Exodus 7, this is interesting because this is God talking to Moses about what he's going to do when he sends him before Pharaoh with this power that he's got. And in Exodus 7, 1, God tells him, I've made you like God to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh's going to think you are the incarnation or embodiment of a God because of your power that I've given you. You know, the staff and and his word would cause plagues, this type of stuff. So like in Pharaoh's mind, there was a divine energy at work in Moses. The, the divine energy of some God. Because remember, Pharaoh had many gods. He might have had a favorite, but there are many gods in Egypt that he thought... Well, you just got to make them happy. And I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Because remember, Moses couldn't speak well. He said, I guess he stuttered. Um, so Aaron was going to be his prophet, his mouthpiece. And so you kind of see another point here. With Abraham, the prophet is God's representative on earth. But with this Moses passage, the prophet is God's mouthpiece. And so it's not just God's representative, but also God's mouthpiece, because Aaron was going to be the one who was speaking, who was eloquent, who, who could rattle off in Egyptian what God wanted said in Pharaoh's court, as Moses just kind of sat back there with his arms crossed, you know, saying, throw down the, throw down the staff, and it turns to a snake, you know, or, or pronouncing curses. So... You kind of see this idea of the mouthpiece. The prophet is the mouthpiece of God. Now, interesting passage, Exodus 15. Y'all turn over a couple chapters, Exodus 15. And a little bit of this is a, a scattershot, but we're getting the idea of what is a prophet, and how are the prophets used, and what they do. So Exodus 15, 20, Then Miriam, who's Moses' sister, the prophetess, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is after the Egyptian army is thrown into the Red Sea and it closes in over them. And so I know it's interesting now that a woman is mentioned. Like I said uh, last week, there are female prophets, prophetesses in the Old and New Testament. There are not female priests. That was a role specifically designed and enclosed for men in the Old Testament. But the role of prophet, prophetess, um, God picked people from both genders to fulfill that role. Um, and here's what Miriam does. This is kind of important to see. She's not just making a song. Be like, well, the worship leader, they're, they're prophets today. No, this isn't just that she's making a song. You've got to kind of, you, you kind of have to look and see what she's doing. She's taking a historical event and she's putting a divine interpretation of it. It wasn't just that the sea closed on the Egyptians. The Lord threw them into the sea. So the job of the prophet was not just to act like God's representative 
or God's mouthpiece, but also when they told the story of what happened, to tell it from the heavenly perspective. Because often that prophet had received a vision or wisdom from the Spirit to know what God was doing, to be able to give the proper interpretation of what happened. And so it may be as simple as the people who were earlier in the train of the Israelites running across the Red Sea did not see what happened. Or it could have been that to your human eyes, it just looked like a big wave. And they're like, wow, wasn't that lucky of us? But the prophet's job was to say, it wasn't just a wave. Remember, God's people, God did this. God was active to throw the Egyptians in the sea. It was his hand that did this. And so you kind of see that the job of the prophet is to represent God on earth, to speak for God, and to interpret events according to what God has actively done in them, not just what you might see with your eyes of flesh. Let's pause for a minute, and I'm going to ask if there are any questions, comments, or anything you see from the text you want to bring out and talk about. Uh, I like to say a thing. Uh, I can see how Pharaoh would be impressed with Moses because he knew him, surely, and he knew his background. He knew that he'd been pulled from the bulrushes by his sister, I guess. Mm -hmm. And uh, Miriam was Moses' older sister. And uh, I can see how, how the Pharaoh would... And Moses knew all the customs. He spoke the language. He could, he could speak on equal terms as a brother almost to Pharaoh. Right. Yeah, and that might have been part of the reason his heart was so stubborn. I'm not going to let you walk in here yeah, and right. tell me what to do with my kingdom. You're lesser than me, even though you're, you know, close, you're, you're, you're kin. Well, you know. Not kin, but. <laughs> K-I-N. Kin. Kin folk. Well, you know, in, in royal families, <clears throat> They kill each other. <laughs> not just ro not just royal families. Kill the brothers. Yeah. Brothers kill the brothers. Royal families. Right? Yep. And they kill the daddies. So and that's the way it is. Right. Anything else y'all can think of in there? I think it's interesting, uh, just on one side that. When God starts to deal with his people, early on you have this theme of prophet come up before the idea of priest is spelled out. And it's not that one is better than the other. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying that, that we've always needed guidance from God. We've always needed our sins covered too, but we've always needed guidance from God throughout our lives. We don't just need rules. Same thing, I guess, raising kids. I don't just need to give my sons rules. I need to sometimes tap them on the head and say, hey, let's talk about this, you know. Here's why I want you to do this. Here's how it makes me happy that you follow this rule. And so you can kind of see where the prophet, um, I, this, I think this just kind of shows the heart of God. The prophet's almost like the emotive side of God's law where it's, I, you know, it's not just here, the letter for you to follow, but 
there's a relationship you have now where this, this, this man or this woman has my spirit on them to guide you through this. I, I'm not just leaving you a letter, but I'm leaving you a relationship with the letter to walk you through life with me. From the very beginning of it, we've had kind of the command and the spirit working together to help us obey God. Let's, if there's nothing else, let's continue. We're in Numbers 11 now. Two books over. Numbers 11. We're talking now more about Moses himself and the idea of prophets amongst the people of Israel. So people are complaining and uh, Moses is there the Lord's angry with the people. Um, Elders get appointed to help Moses because the people are complaining so much. It's, it's really a a sad phase here. And, uh, some people, I guess, um, It's kind of a funny scene. Verse 20, we'll start in verse 26. Now, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. So the Spirit of God is on them. They were among those registers, but they had registered, but they had not gone out of the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. So I guess they're like upset that these people are acting like they have this close relationship to God now and not just Moses. And and Moses says back to them, verse 29, are you jealous for my sake? Like, are you getting upset? He says, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel turned to the camp. So he's he's like, he's not at all mad that these people have a relationship with God now like he did. Because remember, he wanted elders to help judge the people of Israel because it was just, uh, it was wearing him down. And when these people exhibit this closeness in the Spirit where the Spirit of God's on them, they're prophesying and they're, they're enjoying the presence of the Lord in the camp in front of the people, Moses is like, I, I'm, I'm, I want all of God's people to have this type of relationship with him. So, the idea of a prophet was not to exclude the rest of God's people from fellowship with him. The idea of the prophet wasn't to include all of God's people in fellowship with him. And it was kind of this idea, the more the merrier. Um, God's spirit was not just going to be on one person and that person hold it away from everyone else. Under ideal circumstances, more and more and more people until eventually the New Testament era where we all do have access to that spirit um, as Joel prophesies um, that in latter days, which was fulfilled at Pentecost, your young men will, will uh, I'm, I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's, you know, the old men will dream dreams, young men will see visions. It's this idea that we all have this prophetic spirit uh, living in us now. Not that we all go around seeing what God's going to do in the future, but we have this access and closeness to God. We are all kind of the focal point of his redemption on earth. Now we're all uh, have the spirit of Christ in us. 
And so in many ways, Moses is looking forward to where we live, but Moses does want more people to be included in the prophets. It's not an exclusionary thing. Uh, turn over one chapter, Numbers 12. Verses 6 through 9, and this is God speaking again now. Um, because Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses, they complained against him, and God defends him. In verse 6, God says, uh, And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So even though Moses wants more of God's people involved in this prophetic realization, what Moses lives in is a little different than what any other prophet experiences. God was clear to that. There was a difference in the way he chose to deal with Moses face-to-face -face and clearly. So Moses really serves a bit different of a purpose than your average prophet. Now, I've printed this on your paper. We don't have to turn there, but I have two verses from Deuteronomy. And this is Moses talking about the future. The second one, is a later editor looking back on the life of Moses. But Deuteronomy 18 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. That's Moses talking. He's talking about after his death. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. Remember, the people of Israel did not want to see God. They did not want to hear His voice. It was terrifying to them. They wanted Moses to take care of it for them. They wanted him to stand between them and God because he was so terrifying. And Moses is saying, God will raise up another prophet like me. Now remember, Moses is not like other prophets. We just saw that. So Moses is not just talking about every little prophet that comes up is going to be like this, but he's talking about the prophet. When later people ask if Jesus is the prophet, this is what it's speaking of. He's talking about a person who God will talk to face to face, not in riddles, but clearly. And so you kind of see Moses occupying a little bit different spot because he's Moses but also looking forward to someone else who's coming. He tells Israel to listen to. Now, Deuteronomy 34.10. And this is written sometime after. This is by a later editor, obviously. Uh, Moses didn't write this. <laughs> and there has not arisen a prophet since, in, uh, I forgot to see, in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So Moses really did occupy um, in the Hall of Prophets a different role than the other ones we're going to study, which is why we've kind of separated him off a little bit. One last um, statement about him 
And this is found in Hebrews chapter 3. Got your Bible, Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all, of God, in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Now it says, verse 5, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that are to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So who is greater, Moses or Christ? All right, book of Hebrews is very clear. Jesus is better than Moses. Moses actually was serving Jesus. So Moses served the house, and Jesus owns the house. Moses was a servant. Jesus was a son. Um, I wanted to bring that part in because we're making Moses sound very important and he was but he wasn't as important as Christ um, so let's stop a minute and talk um, about Moses and let's talk about um, these questions and we're thinking about Moses as the answer because these three questions first one's what is a prophet Second, what role does a prophet fulfill at this point in the Bible? And third, what does a prophet do when God's people are confronted with danger? Those are going to kind of, they're changing a little bit as the Bible marches on. But with Moses, they're pretty straightforward. So when it comes to Moses, what is a prophet? What is a prophet? One who speaks what God tells him to speak. Yes, the one who speaks what God tells him to speak. They're the mouthpiece. You have to think about this. That law that Moses wrote, nobody in Israel before it was written knew they couldn't eat pork. Nobody in Israel before it was written knew they couldn't eat shrimp. Nobody in Israel knew that if you had leprosy, you had to stay out of the camp and do a certain thing. None of them knew that if you sinned a certain way, you had to give this offering for it. Who told them that? God did through Moses. Moses was the mouthpiece for the law so that Israel could function as a nation and a people of God. He gave them that through those books we call the Decalogue, or not the, the Pentateuch, including the Decalogue, which is Ten Commandments, and all the laws and regulations for civil, ceremonial, and moral Israel. Second, what role does a prophet fulfill at this point in the Bible? So, that's what a prophet does, the mouthpiece, but what is his role? We've, we've, we've looked at a couple of stories about Moses, and maybe I need to uh, kind of remind you of a few others. There was one time the people of Israel had a food. So, who did they go ask? Moses. Moses. And what does Moses do? goes and asks God, where am I going to feed them from? And so God tells him to go do something, and you know, there's quail sometimes, there's manna from heaven. Um, another time they're out of water. God tells them what to do, they get water. Armies will come out and be like, there's a gigantic Middle Eastern trailer park moving through our kingdom. What do we do? Let's attack it. 
and Israel runs, they're scared, they're hiding, and Moses goes out, and at one point, God tells him, you know, um, hold out your staff, and Israel will win. Well, his arms get tired. So two people get on the other side of him and hold his arms up, and they win. Um, so what role is he fulfilling at this point in the Bible for these people? He is their contact, but think about that word. That word can be tweaked a little bit because he is their contact, but he's also something else. Mediator. Mediator. Intercessor. Intercessor. There's an S word we're looking for. Spokesperson. Spokesperson. Savior. Savior. Moses is, is a a type of savior for them over and over and over again, which is what a judge is later in the book of Judges. Uh, the judges are saviors. This prophet that Moses is, he gives them food. He gives them laws. At times they're so scared of God that he, he has to go do something so that God stays away from destroying them, like a mediator, like somebody said. But he is he is their little s savior through most of these books. That's what a prophet is doing at this point in scripture. Moses is doing. He is rescuing them from one, but it's not with his resources, is it? Whose resources? And most of the time, the way he saves them is he prays, God, what do I give them? And God answers. And through that, resource or that power Moses saves them um, to continue on as God's people it's, it's kind of an amazing role he had you can see why his prophetic role is much heavier than a lot of the other people will will see because he's kind of he's kind of acting out what Jesus will do before Jesus is here and so the last question, what does a prophet do when God's people are confronted with danger? Like when Moses realizes the trouble they're in, what does he do? Pray. Seek God. Yeah, he goes to God on their behalf. As somebody said earlier, he is their access to God. Someone said that. And you were you were you were getting to the right point. I just wanted to to make sure you went the scenic route to see what we were all talking about. Moses is their access to God's activity to save them. Now let's look in uh, Judges four real quick. Judges is such a weird book. You will read Judges and you will say, how could these people get it wrong this many times in a row? And, and you know, part of that's human nature. We get it wrong that many times in a row. But also, Judges is, a lot of it, if you look at a map, Judges kind of floats around Israel. It goes from place to place. Some of these are happening, you know, independently of each other. Because Israel is a bunch of regional tribes just kind of hanging around with no unifying king or no unifying prophet. <clears throat> No unifying system of government. Um, they have a common heritage, but 
a lot of that is being erased because they're living amongst people they didn't kill off, like Joshua commanded them. Remove these nations or they will ensnare your heart to serve their gods. And that starts to happen where Israel leaves God and starts to serve other gods and they're confused. And you know, they go, you know, I know a hundred years back there was that, what's that guy's name? Moses. And he said to serve the Lord, but those girls over there are cute. And their father says that we can marry them if we sacrifice to this weird God. And so Israel starts to have a lot of syncretism a lot of apostasy where they leave the worship of God. And in the middle of this, um, every time they sin, God sends enemies to vex them or oppress them, just like he told Moses he would do. And every time Israel gets in trouble, guess what they do? They run back to God. And God usually raises up a leader, a judge, um, to deliver them. So... Chapter 4, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. That's a mouthful. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, Deborah, by the way, her word, uh, her, her name is the name for, uh, is the word for word. So Deborah means word or a matter or a subject. And so her name is the feminine form of word. So she is word or her word. Um, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. The palm was even named after her, you know. Um, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. And so she sent and summoned Barak. Now, Barak means blessed. That's what that word comes from, the Hebrew word. The son of Abinoam from Kedish Naphtali and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali, and, tenth, and from the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And so you know the story. They beat them in battle. Sisera runs, and somebody nails something through his head, um, and he's killed by a woman. The whole point of the story, though, is to look at what the prophet is doing, the prophetess in this time. Deborah's doing the same thing Moses did. First off, she's judging Israel, which is in the book of Judges, a word for governing, because there's no central government. So a charismatic figure who has God's spirit would kind of settle disputes and help them stay the course, um, sometimes ruling a geographic area in Israel. And the people would come to her, and she obviously had a connection to God in a revelatory sense, because she's like, hey, Barak, didn't God command you to go get Sisera? Go do it. Like God told her, obviously, and probably told Barak, and he's like, uh-uh. 
But she's like, no, God told you to do that. God told you to go take out Sisera, rescue his people. So you can see it's a very similar thing that Moses was doing. It's just, it's not as broadly exercised and it's regional, but it's, it's the same model. She's saving and rescuing the people of God from their enemies. And so God does a great work and Deborah and Barak crush this army and, and the people of Israel are saved. And um, it's, and it's quite a story. Uh, J.L., the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. She went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down to the ground. The Bible's filled with wonderful stories like that. Um, nailed his head to the floor. Gave him some milk to make him sleepy. Yeah, yeah, jug of milk and then a tent peg. And so God rescues his people through this uh, general and a prophetess. This prophetess is the only way this happened, though, because if not, Barak wouldn't have thought, you know what, this would be a great time for a military campaign because it looked hopeless. Without that prophetic perspective thrown into it, it looks hopeless for the people of God because they only see the resources they have on earth. We'll close with this one, then we're, we're done for the evening. This is in Judges 6, the prophet there. And it says, uh, the people of Israel, this is verse 1 of chapter 6, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. Isn't that crazy that they lived in caves because of their sin? They did have houses, but because of their sin, they had caves. So verse 7. Well, right before that, in verse 6, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. The people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Verse 7, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God, and you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And we know nothing else about that prophet, except that he preached a really good sermon. You knew not to do this, or you'd end up living in caves. Now the next chapter we have the story of Gideon, and we know that God delivers his people again, but you can see that that's the same prophetic ministry that we've talked about, this guy's a covenant mediator. He comes into to Israel and goes, Hey, look at what God did. He rescued you from the Egyptians. And what did you do? You didn't listen to him. All these Amorite gods that are wicked, you've been following them. You've been mixing with these people, trying to you know, practice their religion and practice yours. You've forgotten about the Lord after he saved you. He told you not to do this. And now look, you're living in caves. He gave you houses and now you're living in caves. So, we're going to ask these, you know, every week. And I think we've answered them well enough with Moses, so I don't have to belabor them for these two prophets. But let's look at the bottom of your sheet, and we'll, we'll be done for the week. Um, 
Well, by the way, you can see the, the prophetic framework from Judges 6. The prophet recalls the past. The prophet restates the covenant. And the prophet rebukes sin, rebukes their sin. You're going to see this in every book that we get to. From Obadiah to Malachi, you will see this framework. The prophet recalls the past. The prophet restates the covenant. The prophet rebukes their sin. So a prophet, first blank, is a leader who has a blank connection with the Lord. Direct. They are not shaking up chicken bones and throwing them out on the ground and trying to decipher. They are not uh, working themselves up into some type of starved ecstasy and then blowing fumes in their face and seeing what visions pop out. It's a direct connection with the Lord. Second, prophet, prophets keep God's people blank on His will. Focused. Very good. When the prophets come to town, it doesn't take long until you realize what you've done wrong. They focus you on God's will. And prophets are often the blank of God's people when they are in trouble. Saviors. Little S. Saviors. Thank you.